obedience. It's, it's a word that uh, is not in fashion today at all. Uh, when you start talking about obedience and what that means and what it looks like, you know, we live in a time right now of extreme relativism, the idea that what you think and what you feel and what you believe is good for you and that's all that matters and you kind of have your own way of doing things. And so when we start to talk about obedience and really just even the definition of obedience rubs a lot of people wrong real quickly. The definition is just simply to submit to the source of another's authority. And so it's admitting that there's some authority outside of you that you're then going to submit to, that you're going to obey. And when you start to talk in those ways or you start to say those things today, quickly there's a whole lot of problems that come with that. Uh, Our culture at large and uh, just overwhelmingly today is saying things like do what you feel. Uh, What you feel and what's true to you is your truth and you live that and you follow that wherever that may be. And that's kind of the the cultural wins. That's kind of the way that we operate today. We hear that a lot. There's a lot of that kind of floating around. No one can tell you otherwise. And we're inundated with that idea. And so if you start to talk about the idea of obedience or submission or, or following what God has said in different ways, if it doesn't align with how I feel, people go, I don't have anything to do with that. And it can become difficult real quickly. Now, that's nothing new. I mean, we may see that kind of overwhelmingly in our culture today, but it's not a new thing. It's been around for a long time. In fact, if we look at what Scripture says and what the Bible tells us, we could really boil it down that it finds its root in sin. Uh, When I say sin, uh, I say this frequently when we talk about sin. Sin is rebelling or ignoring God in the world that he created. Sin is anything that goes against with what God has told us as he is the ultimate reality of what is true and what is right and what is the way in which he's made his world. And so when we go against those things and we ignore him in his world, we're in sin. And so we don't like the reality oftentimes that the Bible presents, that God's view of things should stand over our view of things and that we are called to obey him. That gets real difficult. And so what happens a lot of times is we don't. We say, I know better and this doesn't pertain to me and I don't have to do this in these ways. And so what happens is the world falls apart because of it. The Bible teaches us and tells us that everything that we see, all the problems that come in the world are because we've decided to place ourselves in God's place. Instead of submitting to him, we've taken the place of, no, 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 I'm in control of this and I can do what I want and I don't have to submit and I don't have to obey. And then we have all the mess that we see in the world today. And I was thinking about this idea of obedience and submission as we come to this passage. And maybe as you just heard it read, uh, we're going to look at what Mello just read to us, that maybe that's not what jumped out at you immediately at first. But when you start to kind of peel back and look at this passage, you start to see that there's all sorts of things going on. Uh, everyone around Jesus is kind of operating in their own understanding. We're going to particularly kind of focus on his disciples. Jesus had told them all these direct things, and he had said these things, and he had told them what's coming, and they're so locked into their view of things that they're just kind of going their own way. But then I want us to turn our attention and focus and look at what's happening with Jesus in this passage. Because we really have this incredible contrast between disobedience and ignoring him and doing our own thing and perfect submission and obedience in Jesus. And I want us to see those two things side by side. And then what can we take from this when we start to see what Jesus is teaching us here? 
when we look at Jesus and what he's doing. And so real simply, what we're going to do, there's three snapshots in this passage. There's Jesus talking to his disciples, then Jesus praying in the garden with them, and then Jesus being arrested. And I want us to look at each one of those snapshots first, focusing on the disciples and what they're doing and the way they're operating. The way they're kind of going about and their understanding and what they think. And then we're going to look at them again, but this time focusing on Jesus. And then lastly, how does that help us? How does that pertain to us today? What does it teach us? And so let's just start with what's happening all around Jesus and thinking about the disciples and their mindset and what's happening here. And so beginning in verse 30, it says, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And so just let me remind you where we are. We've been walking through chronologically the four gospels that tell of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Jesus has just left uh, the upper room as he's been having this discussion with his disciples and teaching and all these things. And they go out and they're walking along and he's teaching them. And then they come to the Garden of Gethsemane. And so that's where we are. It's still that same night, late Thursday night, maybe even early Friday morning now. Jesus will be crucified on just a few hours from now. He's about to be arrested, right? And so they go out and then it says, Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. Because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. And so what you get here is Jesus tells them. What's about to go down here, and he's been telling them this, I'm going to be arrested, and I'm going to ultimately be killed. And he's been telling his disciples this for a while now. He's saying the same thing. He says, what's going down tonight? You're all going to leave me. As soon as this happens, you're all going to scatter. And his disciples go, no, 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 that will never happen. That'll never be. And as usual, if you've been reading through the Gospels or you've been with us, you've read through the Gospels before, Peter's the first one to speak up. They may do that, but I will never do that, Lord, right? Peter always is that way. He's always jumping out and telling you how it is, and this is what's going to happen. And no, Jesus, that's not true. I'm not going to leave you. And so he even says to him, if you look closely at what Peter says, he says, I'm going to, uh, I will even die with you if I must, right? Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Peter's going, no, 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 I'm with you all the way to the end, And I'll go down fighting with you, Jesus. And even if I have to die. But here's the problem, I think, as we start to think about it, is is the disciples are committed to Jesus. And I think they're honest in what they're saying and what they're feeling in that moment. And we're with you and we're not going to leave you. But they're committed to their version of who Jesus is. We've been saying this all the way through the Gospels. That the disciples and the followers of Jesus are looking for the Messiah and they're expecting a conquering king to come and overthrow Rome. To, to do away with the, the oppressive government. And they're expecting this to happen. And Jesus keeps going, my kingdom's not like that. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who mourn. He keeps telling them over and over, that's not the way this is going to go. And they're like, yeah, yeah, okay, Jesus. But when you're the king, and when we're sitting there with you, and they just go right past him over and over. And they're so locked into their view of who the Messiah is. Right? They keep thinking that's the way it's going to be. And so they're committed to their version of who Jesus is and what he's going to do. And so when Peter says here, I'll die if I have to, I think he's talking about like, I'll go down fighting with you. And the reason I say that is in a minute, a guy pulls out a sword and cuts off a guy's ear. That's Peter, 
That's Peter doing that when they come to arrest Jesus. He whips out his sword and he's ready to go. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 that's not the way this is going to go. And this is not what this looks like. And I want you to think about the disciples and how they're missing what's happening here and, and the disconnect between what Jesus is doing and what they're thinking. And I think it's really important for us because I think the same thing often happens in our own lives. We're often committed to Jesus insofar as it makes sense to us. I'll follow you, Jesus, wherever it goes, as long as it's my interpretation of what the Bible looks like. Or I'll follow you, Jesus, as long as it fits how I'm feeling at the moment. And so they're going, yes, we'll go with you till death. But they're not understanding who Jesus is and exactly what's about to happen in front of them. They don't recognize that he's come to lay his life down, even though he's been telling them that over and over. And so we do the same thing. We say, I'm with you, Jesus, and I'm going to follow you, and we profess to be a believer. And as long as things are going our way, and as long as they fit our understanding, I'm with you. But as soon as they don't, then we're like, well, the Bible can't really mean that. He can't mean that literally for me in my life right now. And we start to kind of get to all sorts of ways we do it. One of the things that first comes to my mind is the way that we operate with money. God tells us to live generously. To give to him first, to bring to him the first fruits of everything that we are. And he says, and I will take care of you. God actually says, he has this promise in the Bible, try to outgive me and I will take care of you. Live generously. And we go, yeah, yeah, okay, the Bible says that. And then you get to the end of the month and everything's real tight and go, well, God will understand that I don't have enough money to do that this month. He'll understand my situation and he'll know what's going on. And that doesn't really mean me. And it doesn't really mean me right now. So I won't do that. And how quick we are to kind of change that based on our circumstances. I would say the same thing about sex and sexuality. Rampant in our culture. And we go the ways that we feel like makes sense to us. And God goes, no, no, this is the way it looks. And this is the way I've called you, monogamous, committed relationship for life. One man and one woman. And we go, yeah, but that doesn't really fit how I'm feeling today. God can't mean that for me right now in this situation. I don't think he really, or he'll forgive me. Maybe he does mean it, but he'll forgive me. And so we ignore the things that God clearly tells us when they're out of step with the way that we think or the way that we feel or the way that we're operating. And I think what happens a lot of times, there's a whole lot of ways in which we do this, but we ignore it in based on the lie that my situation is unique. God tells us what is true and we go, yes, that's true. But then when it comes, the rubber meets the road in my life, it's like, well, there's a lot of things that make this more complicated in my life. And I don't think that really appeals or, or God means that for me right now. And so what happens a lot of times is we end up committed to our version of who Jesus is. We're willing to submit and we're willing to obey when it makes sense to my way of thinking. And that's exactly what happens with the disciples. We'll never leave you, Jesus. They may fall away, but I will never leave you. I'll fight to the death. And when we get to the end of this passage in verse 56, it says, and all the disciples fled. Because it didn't align with their thinking of who Jesus was. And we are in danger of doing the same thing. But then the second thing I want you to see here as we look at what's happening around Jesus and how they're missing it is in verse 36 to 46 as they go into the garden to pray. 
right? So Jesus tells them you're going to fall away. And then they go into the garden of Gethsemane. We know from the gospels that Jesus spent a lot of time here praying. As Judas comes to betray him, he knows where to find him because this is where Jesus goes to pray often. And as Jesus goes into the garden, he tells his disciples, I'm going to go over here and pray. Sit here while I go over and pray, it says in verse 36. But then he takes Peter and James and John, as he often does, and he says, I want you to watch with me. And what he's saying is stay awake. I want you to pray with me and I want you to stay awake. And then it gives us the Jesus's mindset. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And then he goes off to pray. We're going to come back to what Jesus says in a minute, but I want you to focus on the disciples right now. So he goes off to pray. He prays. He comes back. And what does he find? They're all asleep. And he goes, what are you guys doing? He's like, Peter, Peter, who will never leave me, that will never betray me, that will fight to the death. What are you doing? And he's asleep. And he wakes him up. And he goes, you couldn't watch with me one hour. And he says, watch with me. And he goes off to pray. And he does it again. And he comes back and they're asleep. And then he does it again. He comes back there asleep and over and over. They're just kind of going through and they're sleeping. And there's a huge disconnect between what Jesus is seeing and what he understands that's happening and what he's feeling and what he's dealing with in this moment and what the disciples are seeing. There's a huge disconnect here. It tells us that Jesus is sorrowful even unto death. He became sorrowful and troubled and he's crying out to God. And these disciples that just said to him, we will never leave you. We will never forsake you. And by the way, he just told them this night you're going to, you're going to flee. Right? You just heard that there's this temptation coming for you to run away. And he says, stay awake and pray with me. And they all fall asleep. And I was thinking about that. In light of everything that Jesus has said in the context here. And so if we go back just a few weeks, if you've been with us, just an hour or two before they were in the upper room enjoying this meal. And what does Jesus tell them? Abide in me and you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Trust in me in all things. Continue to make me central in your life and you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And then we go out and he says, hey, you're all this temptation's coming. You're all going to fall away. And what do they do? They go to sleep. And I thought about this this week as I read that and thought how often I can be just like this. And my guess is if you're honest that you're like this too sometimes. Say, yes, Jesus, I'm with you and I love you and I want to know you more. And then it comes to praying and you're like, well, I don't have time to pray. I'm too busy. How do I fit that in? Yes, Jesus says, abide in me and my word in you and you will bear much fruit. And we go, yes, I know I need to read God's word and I know that's essential to my spiritual health. And then you go, but I don't have time. And to be honest, we're just like the disciples falling asleep when Jesus says, watch with me and pray. And we go, ah. And what we're really saying is that I can do this life without you. I can operate on my own and do it in my own way and I can make myself the center of the world and I'll come to you when I need you, but I don't need you every day. And that's exactly what they were doing and what was happening here. Bold profession. Jesus, we are with you to the death and then immediately falling asleep. And Jesus comes back and when he finds them sleeping, look at what he says to him. He says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing but the flesh is weak, 
right? Their, their heart's in it and they believe it to some degree, but their flesh is weak. And I want you just to think about that for a second. If you have weak flesh, think about this physically for a second. How do you remedy that? If you want to be stronger, you're going to have stronger flesh, a stronger body, be more able to have endurance, to lift heavier things or to feel better. What do you do? It's not a trick question. You know the answer to it, right? You work out. You lift weights. You go for a run. You be active. You start to do things that help build your body up. It's it's not a trick. It's actually fairly simple. If you want these things to happen, this is what happens. The same is true, the same is true spiritually. And if you want to grow in your relationship with the Lord, you spend time with Him. Right? So many times people say, uh, I'm really bad at praying. I sit down to pray and my mind wanders and all these things flood in. I have stuff to do and it's hard for me to stay focused. You go, well, how do you overcome that? You continue to pray. You continue to practice the discipline of prayer. If you want to grow in your spiritual strength, your flesh, there's disciplines that you put in place. I don't know if you know this, but this is real simple. Three weeks it takes to make a habit. Did you know that? If you do something every day for three weeks, after three weeks it becomes a habit and you just start to do it. It's really that straightforward. You could, you could set a timer on your phone and begin to pray. And begin to ask God. And all of a sudden you grow in that. And it does happen. And it starts to become part of who you are. And the ways that you operate. And so when Jesus says. Indeed your your, uh, spirit is willing. But your flesh is weak. It's the same true for us. And so so often. We're missing the things that Jesus tells us. I want you just to think what he said. When he says abide in me. And my word in you. Apart from me you can do nothing. He just told them that. We just talked about that a few weeks ago. We can't do it without him. But then yet we don't believe him oftentimes. Or when it comes up against our life, we go, I don't have time for that. And so the disciples here, at least when I read it, I go, man, I'm just like they are. I do the same things. So easy to read it and be like, oh, I can't believe they'd fall asleep on Jesus. And then I go, if I'm really honest, I probably would fall asleep on Jesus. Shoot, I fell asleep in the middle of a football game yesterday watching it on TV. It was fall asleep all the time. But it's so easy for us to do that. So the second thing there, just the way in which we're missing it, we're not listening to what he's telling us. We're not taking seriously what he calls us to. Third thing I want us to see how they're missing it. Last part here, the last snapshot is they show up to arrest Jesus in verse 47. And while he was speaking, Judas came. One of the twelve and with a great crowd with him with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. And so they show up to arrest Jesus. And I want us to focus on the disciples, but it's important to at least note everybody's misunderstanding who Jesus is. Right? They come out to arrest him with great crowds with clubs and swords. They're expecting resistance. They haven't been listening to what Jesus says either. Because he's never been preaching that. He's never been preaching overthrow the government. He's never been preaching that I'm leading a resistance. He's never said that once. But they're coming at him like he is. And in fact, he says back to him, why are you coming at me like this? I've been sitting in the temple teaching and preaching every day. You could have arrested me at any time if you wanted to. Why are you coming at me like this? But what happens here and what unfolds in the scene just shows that everyone around Jesus doesn't get who he is. 
It's helpful if you go read this passage in all four of the Gospels. It's in all four. And the parallel passages together gives you a fuller picture of what's happening. You can read about it in Mark chapter 14 and Luke chapter 22 and John chapter 18 and then here in Matthew chapter 26. But if you look at the fullness of everything that happens, they show up. Jesus says, who do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. John's gospel tells us that. And you know what happens? They all draw back and fall to the ground. Jesus says, I am he. And they fall down. And then they get up and they say it again. And he says, I'm he. And he says, let these others go. If you want me, I'll go with you. Let them go. And right about that time, one of his disciples, and we don't know which one, says, hey, should we use our swords? And right as they say that, Peter chops a guy's ear off. He doesn't even wait to hear, should we use our swords or not? He whips his sword out and chops a guy's ear off, which is kind of funny because Matthew doesn't tell us. It just says one of the disciples chopped his ear off. Mark's gospel, which is Peter's firsthand account, says one of the disciples. But John goes, yeah, it was Peter. (laughs) If you weren't sure, (laughs) you had to guess who it was. It was Peter. And he chops the guy's ear off, which Jesus immediately stops, tells them to stop, tells them to put the swords away. He heals the man's ear. Malchus, the servant of the high priest, he heals him. And he goes, no, it's not going like this. I'm not, we're not fighting. That's not why I'm here. That's not what's happening. And he says, enough, put your swords away. Verse 52, put your sword back into its place for all who take to the sword will perish by the sword. And so Jesus stops them in the midst of it. And I want you to see clearly the fickleness of his disciples as they are committed to their version of who Jesus is. And he says, no, it's not going like this. And they arrest him and all the disciples take off. They were committed to their version of who they think Jesus is, not who he actually is. All of that swirling around Jesus. But now I want us to look at the same story, but now look at Jesus in the middle of it. And what's actually happening here. The logos, the divine truth, God himself in the midst of it. What's happening when we look at him? And the first thing that I want you to see, go back to the beginning there. Go to verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And he tells them this, and they all protest, and they go off to pray. Jesus is praying, asking them to watch with him. It gets to the end of that episode in verse 46. He says, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Then we get to this episode where they come to arrest him. He tells them to put the sword away. He says, this is to fulfill the scriptures and everything that the prophets have foretold. It's supposed to go this way. And the first thing that I want you to see as you look at Jesus in the middle of all this is he's not surprised by any of it. There's not a single thing happening here that Jesus goes, oh, no, this isn't the way it was supposed to go. He never turns to the disciples and says, get your swords. We got to get out of here. He says, this is the plan and this has always been the plan and he's not surprised by it. And so I want you to remember this. Oftentimes we are so blown off the path of what God calls us to be because of the circumstances in our life. We go, I don't see how it works in this. And God couldn't have meant it this way for me right now in this. 
But in the middle of this story, what you see is that Jesus is not surprised by any of it. The things that shake us to our core, Jesus stands solid in the middle and he goes, no, this is the way it's supposed to go. Because he's the sovereign Lord over all things. And I think of this story in a lot of ways as like a hurricane. All this stuff is swirling around and all this mess that's happening and all these misunderstandings. Have you ever seen the eye of a hurricane? You ever seen when they fly the planes through it? What's the eye of the hurricane like? It's calm. It's perfectly calm. And all this stuff is swirling around. And Peter's pulling out his sword and they're yelling and we're going to fight and we're going to do this. And Jesus says, enough. All of this is taking place to fulfill what God said was going to take place. And I want you to be reminded of that in your life. When everything seems out of control. And the things that often can pull us away from the things that God clearly tell us. And we go, I don't know how this is working. And why is it like this? Jesus is not surprised. He's never surprised. And he is the calm center in the middle of all of it. But then the second thing I want you to see is just because Jesus is not surprised, and he's not, and he's the calm center in the middle of it, it doesn't mean that he's immune to suffering. In verse 36 and following, Jesus goes into the garden and he begins to pray. And he asks the disciples to watch with him. He even says to him in verse 38, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And Jesus goes a little further and he fell on his face and he prayed saying, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so you could not watch with me one hour. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, for a second time, he went and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass until I drink it, your will be done. And again, he found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. And so leaving them again, he went away and prayed for a third time. The same words again. And I want you to think about what's happening here with Jesus. If you read the parallel passages, Luke chapter 22 tells us that Jesus was in such agony as he prayed and praying more earnestly to the point where his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. Luke tells us that the physician tells us that he was sweating drops of blood. You know how that happens? It can't happen. You sweat drops of blood when you are in such stress, when you are so overwhelmed with the moment, when you are so taken with what's happening that literally capillaries start to burst and you begin to sweat drops of blood. And Jesus is sweating blood. And he's crying out to the Father. And he's saying, if it's possible, if there's any way that this cup can pass, He's saying to the father, if there's any way that we do this a different way, this would be the time to tell me. And Jesus is crying out to the father and he's asking if there be any way. And so what's he praying about? What's he saying when he says, if there's any way that this cup can pass for me? If you zoom out and you look at the whole of the Bible, right? We were just talking about this in the equipping class. 
How do you study a passage and how do you look at the things? Well, if it says cup, we go and we look. How is that used in the Bible? What is Jesus referring to? What is he talking about? And if you zoom out and you look at what the Bible says, you get two times in Isaiah chapter 51 and you get in Jeremiah chapter 25 and you get in Revelation chapter 14 and Revelation chapter 16 and the cup is the cup of God's wrath. And so when Jesus is praying to the Father, he says if there's any way, if it be possible, let this cup, the cup of God's wrath, pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then he goes and he finds his disciples sleeping and then he goes back and he prays again. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. He's saying. Jesus knows that he's going to be arrested. And he knows it's going to end in his crucifixion. And they're going to hang him on the cross. And he knows what's coming. The Bible tells us what happens when Jesus hangs on the cross. Second Corinthians chapter five says, for our sake, he, the father, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Do you hear that? The perfect sinless one, God himself in the flesh, comes and he lives life perfectly in all the ways that we failed, he succeeds. And then he willingly lays his life down and when he goes to the cross, he who knew no sin, the father allows him to become our sin in our place. And so as Jesus hangs on the cross, he drinks the cup of God's wrath down to the bottom and empties it of all. And the wrath that he is bearing is for the sin of all those that would put their faith in him. Those disciples that were falling asleep in front of him. The disciples that fled the second it got hard. Jesus says, no, not my will, but yours be done. And I'm going to drink of this cup. And he gets up and he walks straight into it and he chooses to do so. And I want you to think about why that's the case. Like what he says here in verse 42. If this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And then he gets up and he goes. So there's not another way. Right? Jesus asked the Father, if there's another way, this would be the time to tell me. There's not another way. Why is that the case? Have you ever considered that? Why do we say Jesus died for our sins? Why do we worship a God in which he would come and lay his life down and be brutally crucified? Why do we have crosses all over around here? Right? I mean, it's kind of crazy if you take it out of the context of the Bible, right? A cross was literally the way in which the Roman occupying force killed people publicly. And we have them all over. We wear them around our necks. Why? Why is that the only way? Because God is perfect in every way. God is perfect justice and he is perfect mercy. In order for him to offer forgiveness to us, sin has to be dealt with. People go, well, why didn't God just forgive? Because God would cease to be God if sin wasn't dealt with. He would no longer be perfect. But God provides a way in which we as broken, sinful people can be restored to him. It's by Jesus taking our place. 
the perfect sacrifice on our behalf, bearing the wrath of God in our place. And that's what he does. He says, if there's not another way, I will drink of the cup. And he gets up and he goes right into it. And notice here as they come to arrest him and what happens, what does he do? Put your swords away. Peter, I could call down angels right now and end this. I am choosing for this to happen. I'm walking directly into this to bear the wrath of God on your behalf. And so he does. But I want you to see very clearly in the midst of this, Jesus is not immune to your suffering. When he goes to the cross and he bears the wrath of God, he takes on the sin of the world. He knows every evil deed. He knows everything. He knows shame and guilt and the fullness of everything that you go through in your life. And he knows it fuller than you do. And so I want you to see when Jesus is the calm in the middle of the storm and he knows what's happening, it's not because he's indifferent to your suffering. He knows what your suffering is like. He knows what your temptation is like. He knows it fuller than you do. But then the last thing I want you to see here as we look at Jesus, he says this, Father, if there be any other way, but if not, I will drink of this cup. And he says, not my will, but yours. Verse 42, he says, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And then we get to the last episode as they come to arrest him. And he says, put away your sword for all who take to the sword will perish by the sword. Do you not think I can appeal to my father? And at once he will send me 12 legions of angels. I can end this whenever I want to. And so I want you to see that Jesus chooses obedience in the face of the scariest thing that any person would ever face, bearing the wrath of God. He chooses obedience. You go, well, wait a second. What do you mean obedience? Jesus is fully God. He and the Father are one. They're moving in perfect harmony together. Yes, that is true. But Jesus is fully God and fully man, and he's tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. And so in the garden, as Jesus is crying out to God, When he says, if there be any other way, he's feeling all the emotions, the human emotions that go with that because he is fully human. And although he's perfect and he's without sin, he knows exactly what it feels like. He knows what it feels like to want to quit. He knows what it feels like to go, this doesn't make sense in my situation right now. But he says, not my will, your will be done. And I say obedience because the Bible says obedience. Philippians chapter 2 says Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Obedience. Hebrews chapter 5, although a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Have you ever thought about that? That Jesus shows us what perfect obedience looks like? That when he's tempted in every way, yet without sin, that he continues to obey the Father in the face of temptation of all things? And so he shows us what that perfect obedience looks like as he submits to the Father's will. And in so doing, he provides a way that we can be restored to the relationship we were created for. Through his obedience, we're saved. And so here's the part I want us to think about. Like, what do we take away from this? I've read this passage a lot of times. I've preached on this passage several times. I love this. I love the Garden of Gethsemane and what it is that Jesus is doing for us. 
I love that when they come to arrest him, that he says, I could end this at any time and I am choosing to go forward. But I'll tell you, I, I read this over and over and I had never seen it quite like I did this week. Which that's God's grace and his ongoing showing and teaching you and leading you. And so please, I had a professor who used to say this. Don't ever check out when it's a passage you feel like you know pretty well. Because you've never read it where you are today. And God is living and active and he's continuing to teach you and show you in his word. And so the first thing that I want you to consider is what Jesus' obedience means for us. In Jesus, if you've put your faith in him, you are a new creation. And you're united, you are united with the Father through what Jesus has done, through the Spirit. You are now one with Jesus. We have a unity with him. He is living in us and with us, and he's remaking us. Uh, we looked at Ephesians 2 this morning in the equipping hour. He's created good works for us to walk in. Because we're a new creation and he's doing these things in us, And so I was thinking about that and what does that look like? And I was reminded of something that a friend of mine, a pastor friend wrote uh, a couple months ago and I wrote it down and I want you to listen carefully to what he says because I think he's right. I think it's what the Bible teaches. We experience God's grace most powerfully when we live a holy life, not when we continue to sin and receive forgiveness once again. And I want you to really think about that. We experience God's grace most powerfully when we live a holy life, not when we continue to sin and receive forgiveness once again. Now, I want you to hear the way he said that. You do experience God's grace when you sin and you repent and you come to him and you find his forgiveness. And that is true. And that is good. And that is right. And we rejoice that even though that we are wicked sinners, that God has continued to be long-suffering and kind and gracious and loving, and he continues to pursue us. And that is true. But I'm going to tell you, we often forget the first half of that statement, that we experience God's grace most powerfully when we live a holy life. And I want you to think about what Jesus did here and how that comes to bear in our life. Jesus wanted to stop at that moment. God, if there be any other way. But he doesn't. And he perfectly obeys the Father. And in so doing, he saves us. And now we're united with him. By grace, you've been saved. But you're united with Jesus. And now he gives you the ability to actually resist sin. And it's not you, it's him in you. It's by his grace. And I'm as guilty of this as anyone. I think about it as like grace is he's forgiven me for my sin. And yes, that's true. But I forget that his grace allows me to resist temptation to begin with. Right? And if we miss that, we've missed a huge part of who we are in Jesus. You're missing a huge part of the grace that is given for you. That we continue to follow him in all things. And that doesn't mean you're going to do it perfectly. It doesn't mean that there won't be times when you blow it. But what it does mean is that God has given you the ability in him by his grace, united with the spirit, as as you're united with the son, as the spirit's working through you to be able to resist temptation. And in so doing, you glorify who Jesus is. Yes, 
He saved us and we are justified, but he's also saved us in our sanctification as we continue to follow him in all things. And that means there's going to be things in your life where you go, this, I don't see how this can possibly work. And this doesn't make sense to me. But I'm going to continue to trust Jesus even when I don't see it. I'm going to obey because he perfectly obeyed. And he's now given me the salvation I have through his obedience. And we continue to seek to follow him in all ways and all things. And then the last thing, and I'll end here, is in the middle of this passage with everyone falling asleep and everyone leaving him and everyone betraying him and everyone going off that Jesus chooses to go to the cross. And he does so for the good works that we're going to walk in, but he also does so for our forgiveness. And it's all his doing. And it's all what he's done for us. And so wherever you are in your life and you go, yeah, but I've made a mess of it and I've done this and I've done that. He goes, he knows. He knows all that. And he chose to lay down his life anyway. He didn't go, oh, they're not worth it. (laughs) This isn't worth it. He says, no, I'm going to show you what the glory of God looks like. And he does it anyway. And he chooses to do so. Oh, that we would see the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. That you have saved us by no doing of our own. That it's all what you've done for us. But we do thank you that in our salvation that you have saved us to you. And that we are a new creation. And that we get to walk in obedience. And so help us to see trusting you more fully in all things. We pray that we would live in light of the glorious grace that you've given us in the steps of obedience, particularly when they don't make sense to us, particularly when the things of the world press in and we can't see it. Oh, would we trust you in the grace that you've supplied for us to follow you in all things. And we pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.